Welcome back to the Motion Picture Show. I'm your host, Lena Khatib, along with Claudia Musical. Hello, everybody. Today we have a very special guest, not only because they are our first guest, but because they are a dear friend and fellow film lover, maker, etc., etc. Today we have the wonderful Alex Nash. Hello. Hi, Alex. Woo! Hey, Hi. Alex. I'm happy so, to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are our natural choice for our first guest for many reasons. You're one of our friends who is actually in the film industry. And I'm going to be honest, today we are doing David Lynch. And I think that you are the biggest David Lynch fan I know. So it felt only natural and right. <laughs> that is an intimidating title, but I wear it <laughs> proudly. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's just out of people I know. Like, I don't know all the David Lynch fans, so. I think I'm just pretty vocal about it. When I finally found a director where I could, like, jump from movie and project to project, where I was like, oh, I consistently like his, like, film philosophy. I don't know, his code in the way that he makes and, like, carries himself and everything. I was like, oh, like, I actually have a favorite director. I was like, cool. I don't know. There's a lot of pressure in, like, film school to, like, have a favorite director. So when I found it, I was like, oh, okay, work. Like, that's him. So Which I relate to with music, because I always feel like with musicians, I don't like their whole bodies of work, but just randomly. So when I find a musician where I'm like, whoa, I like every album, it's kind of that same similar feeling. But maybe you're right. It is the same with film. I just never felt it as much. I oh, I do. <laughs> I like I have like ten directors, and I watch everything that they do. And Wait, who are you guys' filmmakers? Uh, okay, so I guess I can go through my list. I okay, I love Sofia Coppola, Wes Anderson. I love Steven Spielberg. I wrote a biography on him in middle school. <laughs> like I was obsessed with Spielberg's movies. And who else do I love? It kind of varies. It comes in and out. I love Greta Gerwig, and. I feel like I'm missing, like, way more. I, I need to write a cohesive list, but I like a lot of people. Uh, well, so, I don't know. I probably haven't mentioned this a thousand times, but I'm an Aquarius, so I really don't like to be pinned down and have to choose. <laughs> but if you're going to make me, I... Well, first I'll say I do more tend to just like the individual movies, like I was talking about with music, so it's hard for me to pick one director uh, but the directors that I enjoy, like a lot of their different works, um, probably, I don't know why he's coming up first, but Yorgos Lanthimos, mm. Lars von Trier, I mean, the classics, like Stanley Kubrick, of course, Wes Anderson. Oh, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but like every boy in film school is going to be like, oh, I love, I stand Kubrick. So we, we, yeah. know, we know this. And then I just, I love a lot of individual films, um, like from the 70s. I love uh, Louis Buñuel, a surrealist 70s filmmaker. And then I just love, I don't know, I really can't choose a director because it's just the movies for me. Like Fight Club is one of my all-time favorite movies. Me too, and I hate saying it. <laughs> it's genius, so yeah. It was, honestly, yeah. it was my first favorite movie. It was the movie yeah. that made me realize that you can make people feel things with movies and like... That's why I love it. Because right. I was like, I was also like 15. I was like, uh, my mind was like blown, but I'm sorry. I, I totally relate. No, I totally, it was my second movie that was my favorite movie. My first was Sweeney Todd. 
But I do like the rest of David Fincher's work a lot like the game and stuff, but I still, I wouldn't be like, oh, it's just his overall style. It's like, no, he has this masterpiece. And then, you know, Louis Spoonwell has that obscure object of desire as his masterpiece. So I just look at people's masterpieces in my mind. Of course, that's totally mm-hmm. subjective, but that's my very long answer. That's all, That's also probably why I stuck with Lynch, because I was like, oh, I'm a Libra. I really can't pick things. And I was like, this actually feels right. So... <laughs> And I'm like, my list just grows. I like everybody. (laughs) Like, I appreciate everyone for what they can bring to the table. Right. Well, maybe not everybody. We know some some problematic people. (laughs) Looking at you, Michael Bay. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, though, Transformers, I love that movie. I love that movie. That movie is a banger. I do, too. (laughs) That soundtrack transports me. Never seen it. Don't know what else he's done. Okay, Claudia, we're going to do Transformers for the podcast because it is... It is a cultural reset. Like it's one of those things that is Claudia's cup of tea. But I'm scared. No, <laughs> I think you'll you'll love certain parts of it. I don't think you'll like it all, but there'll be certain elements that I think you'll appreciate. Okay, okay. But really, to get back to the main focus here, it was all about right. Nash and who <laughs> this person is. So I'm just gonna dive right into that before we get on 10 million other tangents. Alex Nash to me, this is my bio for Alex, is a filmmaker overall, a fantastic editor, director, and generally artistic soul and explorer of different mediums. One that I really have to bring up is the makeup. Oh my God, the skills just keep improving and I have personally worked with Alex a number of times. Lena, have you worked with Alex? I don't know. <laughs> By proxy. Yeah, By proxy. like, I know, like, Alex covered when I got randomly sick in February, which it might or may not be COVID. Who knows with all these conspiracy oh theories God, when right. it started. You were yeah, because so I got weirdly sick. sick. And Alex filled in for me that day and filmed a lot of one of our short films. So, like, we worked together, but not together. And I think there was another moment, too, where you helped out with something we were doing, but I wasn't there. But it was the same project. Oh, no. I was on set when you were shooting um, Enflourage. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We worked together somewhere. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was a mess that day, too. It was... When we didn't sleep for like 36 hours and I had gone to work. Wow, what a what a production experience that movie was. Yeah, I've never felt that way in my life. I really felt like I was, you know, like recovering from a meth addiction or something. That's how I imagined it in my head. Claudia, I remember you slept over at my house, which was also the set, because you couldn't find your keys. And then in the morning, they were just like right there. It was so obvious where they were. It was so weird. And I was sitting on the <laughs> set couch. Oh, terrible, terrible. But what I wanted to say is that the reason that I say Alex is an overall artist is because I think you have your main things that you like to like, okay, this is what I mostly do and what I'm focusing on. But at the same time, you've acted in our movie. You actually shot part of the new film we're working on. So I'm like, I don't know. I think she does it all. (laughs) I think that too. And I think artist is a great title for Alex because... I honestly do believe Alex could probably excel in any aspect of any artistic medium. Right. It's just that taste, that eye, that knowing of art. Yeah. You make me cry. That's so (laughs) nice. I think 
I needed to hear that because I don't know. I think COVID, I just haven't felt that like artistic spark in a really long time. And actually like diving deep back into one of my favorites, like like Lynch and Mulholland Drive has actually really reactivated something in me. And then hearing like all of your kind words, it's like, it's like film therapy. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> That's really nice. (laughs) Oh, I'm super glad. And I truly mean it. And I also think that you're someone who grows a lot in everything you do for the better. Like you change for the better, which I can't say everyone does. And you know how to improve as you go along, which is, I think, really important. Like I said, pretty rare. I agree. Um, And I do have to mention, most recently, you did my makeup about a week ago for a project. (laughs) So that'll be coming out soon. And once again, I was blown away. I can't be blown away by everything you do. And everyone who's listening, you guys need to follow Alex on Instagram. Like the series that she did with yes. Selena for Halloween for the whole month. Blown away. Killed it. Every single look. Like I was in awe every week. Oh, me too. Shook it to the core. Yeah. yeah can we get your handle? It's... So Alex at Alex Nash is taken on Instagram by some random white dude with like 30 followers. Anyway, so it's at A-L-E-X-N-V as in Victor S-H until the day comes that I may reclaim. We will also (laughs) post that on our Instagram. But there you have it. Go look at everything that Alex does because like we said, it's all amazing. Thank you for that extraordinary bio, Claudia. You're welcome. Save it as a ringtone. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. We can give you the audio clip. (laughs) She kind of gave it away, but today we are doing... Lena, take it away. I think you already mentioned it yourself, Claudia. We're doing ball and drive. (laughs) I can't believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place. This one comes highly recommended. What are you doing? Get out of the car. Yeah. The girl is still missing. What's wrong? I just don't know who I am. So, Mulholland Drive is written and directed by David Lynch, as we've been talking about. It came out in 2001. The log line is the following, which even this doesn't give you anything really about the movie, but we can talk about that. It's after a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac. She and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across Los Angeles in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality. So the movie had a $15 million budget. It grossed about like $28 million worldwide. The film stars Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. It also stars Robert Forrester and Justin Theroux. Who is first? And that really bothers me. Sorry. What? He's billed first in the opening credits. Oh. I think he was the biggest actor at the time because I don't think Laura Herring was known and Naomi Watts didn't have as much of a reputation. I think this was like her really big role. Okay, so the production film was Lace Films' Alan Sarde. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. And 
the cast and crew total was about 270 people, which that's pretty, again, once that's small compared to like some of the other films that we talked about. What I thought was really interesting about this movie was that it was intended to be a TV pilot and then it turned into a feature. And I'm curious how that really affected the production of, in terms of like the size of the cast and crew and the budget and everything else. So in my like diving before this uh, podcast, I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to read the script. I'm always really interested in reading his scripts. I'm typically hoping to get a peek into his mind, but it's really just typically written as we see it. So I was reading the script and then it was right after she had cut her hair and everything. And then it ended and I was like, mm. I just read the pilot script. <laughs> I knew it. I literally, okay, oh my God. Before I watched the movie, like, and I found that out, I was like, wait, where would the pilot have ended? And I knew it. I literally was like, that would be the scene where the pilot had ended. And it's like, it's like verbatim. Like that first, like first two acts are like fully, or like first act and a half, I guess, is the pilot. Sorry, I had to interject that because I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm not going to search for the script because that was the script. I just didn't read the end of it. But I thought that was funny and interesting. Well, right. And this was coming off of Twin Peaks, which I would say is pretty successful. And they just did not want the pilot for Mulholland Drive. The studio execs did not like it. And I read that they thought that Naomi Watts and Laura Lindley were too old for television. Which they were like 30 at the time. I think we're getting more older women on television, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s. It's pretty normal at this point. Right. And that was something I was thinking about um, when I was watching the film is that this, if this was pitched as a pilot today, it would easily be a TV show. No questions asked just because of how much television and streaming has just changed uh, narrative styles and what's even on TV. Right. When you think of like what TV used to be, TV used to be known as like a lesser art form. And then that Twin Peaks is kind of the point where it turns into something that can be upheld as like a higher art form. Like a lot of people say we're in the golden age of TV right now. So it's interesting that like basically while making this pilot kind of critiquing Hollywood Lynch gets like fully scorned again by Hollywood. I have this book of his that is a collection of like little essays and he has a little section on Mulholland Drive and he said that when he was showing the pilot to the execs they were watching it while at 6 a.m. standing and drinking coffee and like taking calls because it's like they're like oh it's like a tv pilot whatever and they dropped it so leave it to the French to pick it back up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is what happened. This, I think, is actually our first Studio Canal movie that we've done so far. And it is a French production company. And that is who gave Lynch the $7 million to finish this as a feature, which it wasn't even his idea to make it a feature. It was brought to him like, oh, it wasn't successful as a pilot. Do you want to do it as a feature? And we'll give you funding. And he didn't like this idea at first because he had such a bad experience with the pilot and the rejection And I believe that the studio even destroyed all the sets and got rid of the costumes, which you aren't really supposed to do. You're supposed to catalog them and save them just in case for the future Mm -hmm. for a while. So that was completely destroyed. So that was kind of devastating to him. 
but he was able to turn it around and find inspiration again. And then he was happier that it all happened this way and gave him that new wind. Yeah. And I mean, even when you were talking about the pilot script, I could tell because right now I'm in a, I've talked about this before on the podcast, a pilot, uh, TV, not pilot specifically, but a TV writing program. And right now we're doing spec scripts. So we've been analyzing like pilot structures. And so I, I knew that that's where the pilot ended because it made sense when you look at a pilot. And then also knowing this information that Claudia just mentioned, how uh, ABC Studios, I believe, was the studio behind it. They destroyed all of the sets and the uh, not accessories. What is it called on a the movie? Props. <laughs> the props. <laughs> yeah. Costumes, <laughs> all that. Yeah. They, like, got rid of a lot of that. You can tell where there's a moment in the movie where it shifts, and it's interesting how production can have an influence on your story that you're telling because he no longer had the set to work with, so he had to change the ending based on what he had in his resources. And I think that's fascinating because that tracks also in Twin Peaks he didn't know where it was going while he was doing it. And it just, it just c- continues to build. Like the main like antagonist was a sound guy who was crouched in a weird way. And he was like, Oh, you look scary. We're going to make you the antagonist. Like to just like, I I don't know. I, I think that's fascinating because it seems like such a completely thought out piece, you know, not that, not to say it wasn't, but. What I was going to say is what I really appreciate about that stance in filmmaking that David Lynch has is that you embrace what happens during the process because it is a collaborative medium. It is a collaborative process and things just happen organically that you can't control. And instead of rejecting it and being mad that the story isn't what you thought it would be, of just embracing it instead is such a great way to look at it when you're on set and in production. Happy accidents. And yeah. it's impressive that you are able to make it good while doing that. Not everybody could do that if they, you know, had these um, obstacles before them. One thing I was going to say is that apart from it just having supposed to pilot, it was actually going to be a Twin Peaks spinoff where the character Audrey Horn, who is my favorite character in Twin Peaks, was going to be the Betty character which I would just find fascinating. And I think it's better that it is a separate thing. But before I even knew that it was a pilot or connected to Twin Peaks, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is like Twin Peaks does Hollywood. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah. That tracks that Audrey Horn's your favorite character, Claudia. That really tracks. <laughs> I actually, I took one of those really crazy, super long character tests of like which character are you most like that actually have some kind of psychological background and she was one of my top characters for being most similar to oh I, I took that test that. too yeah, I got fun. Dale Cooper on that oh, and oh. Dale one of my favorite <laughs> characters of like all television just a pure human being I, I think I took that test too but I don't remember anybody because I think I looked at everybody and was like no way <laughs> I rejected them all. I was like, that's not me. This is wrong. <laughs> no, I did like mine. But I only remember Audrey Horn. I was like, hmm, I'm satisfied. That's the one I'm going to remember. I got like Dale Cooper and Dumbledore. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, oh. Dumbledore is a deeply flawed character. But anyway, we're all flawed. I said I had some controversial thoughts about this movie. And I, I think now's the time for me to share it. After watching this, and I love Twin Peaks. 
Like, I love Twin Peaks. It's probably one of my favorite TV shows ever. But I wrote down soap opera. <laughs> David Lynch's work is soap operas. Yeah, he does soapy stuff. But he, like, it's, it's a soap opera that's very well acted and put together. But the melodrama is there. And, like, the dramatic reveals. Like, she has amnesia. Like, it's just, like, very tropey <clears throat> within soap operas in this movie and so I was really shocked when I watched this because I've heard so much about Mulholland Drive and I'd never seen it and even the poster makes you think it's something else that it's not so I thought it was like one of these like you know late 90s uh, early 2000s like gone girl maybe like type of like mystery movie just from the posters and then when I started watching I was like oh yeah this is David Lynch of course it's not going to be that and I felt like it was kind of funny at some points. It might not necessarily have been deliberately funny, but it was just comedic to me how dramatic the movie is. And I I was shocked that this is the movie that everyone thinks is like one of the best movies ever created. Because I think it's a good movie. I really enjoyed watching it, but I wouldn't put it in that threshold for me personally. I agree. I it's not. I don't think it's one of the best movies ever made. That being said, I really do like it. But still, I wouldn't put it up there just for my own personal reasons, I think, as an artist, like what I value. I really love this movie. <laughs> I know you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's it's a it's a cliche, but this is one of the main movies that comes to mind when you talk about it being rewarding for rewatches. I don't think that you can have a fully formed opinion on this movie just seeing it once or even twice. And I've only, it's not the easiest watch like to do again and again. Um, but I think the first time I saw it, I watched it again like right afterwards because I was like, what the fuck did I just see? Can I swear on this? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what did I just watch? And I think. What I love the most about his movies, and this is kind of how you know if you'll be in or out on David Lynch, is how willing you are to, like, go with the flow. Like, okay, I'm going to go for this ride and, like, kind of just take it, everything that comes at me at face value. And then, I don't just allow yourself to feel the feelings of the cinema and not try to rationalize your way around everything and I think that's really hard for a lot of viewers because we want so intensely to like make sense of everything and to be able to rationalize a lot of things and a lot of things in life don't make sense so those are some of his own personal philosophies of cinema is using it as a language for where you can't find language I can't say it's about anything but the themes of dreams and reality and desire and like failure I think are really poignant and I think every time every time I rewatch it I can piece little pieces of it together especially like at the end of the dinner scene you can like backtrack and do like the the detective points to other points in the film and I just think that's so so good for like an active watcher of movies Right, which I will say, as an audience, I think we've almost been trained not to have to do that because most movies, a lot of movies, maybe not most, I don't know, but they 
tell you what's really happening and they make it very clear and there's not a lot of room for that interpretation which I do think sets Lynch apart because there's so much room for interpretation and it does bring up a lot of questions whenever you watch anything of his you have a million questions and questions Mm -hmm. I think are very good yeah yeah and I agree I think that's what I really enjoy about his work you know and I I do see what you're saying like this is something I totally would want to watch again and I would want to look and be like what did I miss like what were these little clues that he had sprinkled in earlier that I didn't see because I had no idea what was going on on this journey that he was taking me on and even when I was reading like the Wikipedia description of the synopsis I was like this isn't what the movie is about like I felt like I had a completely different interpretation than what whoever wrote that Mm-hmm. About right, film. which I think it's interesting because this is your first viewing. I believe this is my second, and I'm guessing you've seen it multiple times, right, Alex? So we're all coming yeah. from different perspectives. And that's, like, the beauty of it, isn't it, you know? That I've actually never tried to work through this film with anyone. Film watching is such an isolated experience because you're, like, alone in your brain, and mm-hmm. then you get to go and share your perspectives that you've gained through, like, your own life experience and then share them with other people with other life experiences. And it's beautiful. (laughs) Which I guess leads us to the plot. What do we all think was really happening there? Loaded question. Lena, you're like the virgin watcher. So tell us your interpretation. Well, first of all, before I even tell you guys what I think, I don't think it matters what I think. And I don't think it matters what any of us think. Oh. Not at all. I, I think what's so fun about this movie is that things just happen and that's it. And then whatever you no, think happened, like that. you think. I did research a little bit and see what everybody else thought it was about. And it was just so funny, like seeing these people kind of like argue what the movie is about. And it's like, that's kind of the point. It can be whatever you want it to be to a certain extent. But for me, I think Naomi Watts is Diane. And I think that it is that like dream sequence where she wants to rewrite her story in a way. And she wants people to think that she is this fresh actress. But I think the reality is that she is a, I hate this phrase, but like a washed up, like has been actress. And, you know, Camila, they might have slept together, but like it wasn't really anything deeper than that for her at least it's just like Naomi Watts's character as Diane just kind of going through like her psychosis and deteriorating from believing in her disillusion but then also facing reality I could be completely wrong and that's okay too because I think that this movie does open itself up to multiple interpretations and I think that they're all right at the same time Am I next since I've seen it the <laughs> next amount? I mean, like, just because I've seen it the most doesn't mean that my, you know, obviously mine is, like, yeah. right or wrong or whatever. But, yeah, go go forth. Well, the first viewing, I thought it was more of a Lena thing with the dream, and this is what she really wished had happened, and then she needed to imagine that Camila was, you know, dependent on her and all this, which my one question for you is, though, if... She, if it really doesn't mean anything to Camila, why does Camila invite her to the dinner? And why is she focused on torturing her at the dinner? Why would you do that? Why would you invite someone who you don't even care about just for sadism? That's my question there. Another fun theory 
that I had this time is that perhaps we're dealing with different dimensions because we saw that in the Twin Peaks, the new one that came out. What I don't know what it was, the revival, the, I don't know. The but return. The return, Wait, there we go. I, I thought that too, because of the box, but continue. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll yeah, revisit my the comment. Box, and just like how she's dead and then she comes back alive, but then she still ends up in the same spot. And I've actually been watching uh, The Man in the High Castle, which I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with. I just finished that series, but it's all about really briefly to tell you the similarities it's about if the nazis won world war ii and it's this alternate world where japan and germany rule the united states the west coast and the east coast and then it goes into different dimensions so different dimensions have been on my mind but i kind of thought like what if these characters are just alternative versions of themselves in different dimensions where it's like betty slash diane is the same person but she was just born into better or worse circumstances where she might have an aunt who could get her a connection and or she you know just a nobody who just moved there and didn't really find any success but I think there are like core things that would connect you in every dimension, such as I think Diane, no matter whether she's the sad, depressed one or the really happy one, I think she is actually a very talented actress, the character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a through line. Does that even matter or does it depend on your circumstance? Like even if you're a great actress, do you have the connections or not? Mm-hmm. This is kind of what I was going into, just this whole thing about like who you are versus what circumstance you're born into. And then I thought it was just an, I can't fully explain it. Like, I don't have all the answers to how my theory makes sense or not. But this is just the interpretation that I wanted to follow for this viewing. Yeah, I feel that it's, it's kind of that kind of theory of circumstances versus merit is like a whole America meritocracy thing in itself. But I feel like it could be both. Because I feel like the dream is a way of Diane being like, where my life ended up is not my fault. It's circumstance. Like, it's circumstance that Camila got the role because the mob really wanted her. The mob was like, this is the girl. So I would have never had a chance to get that role. But she also left before she had a chance to, like, meet Adam. It's all of these things that were, like, never her fault. And the the machinations of, like, destiny. And, like, I feel like when people have a lot of regrets in their life, they look at things that could have happened. And so you're meant to reflect on that in these like two kind of parallel worlds. Right, which quick thing, I just want to say, I think the things that stayed in the both parallel worlds were her talent as an actress and her love for Camila. Love, obsession, whatever it is, but her intense connection to Camila. But continue. Did we we see her as a in the second half? Or in the- No, no, but I still believe she is. In my Mm -hmm. heart. I just believe it. Mm. Well, like, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great actresses that never do anything because they never get that that moment, that shot that well, Camila because, happened to get. Well, and she I was going to say uh, Naomi Watts. I don't remember which character name she is when she says this line, but she's like, I want to be a great actress, not a movie star. But sometimes you can be both. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That was Betty. That was Betty talking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was in the beginning. I love that line. I yeah. really do. A lot of um, I was re- I was noticing upon this this rewatch. I'm just looking at my notes. They talk a lot about on its face. They talk about dreams. Like in the beginning, Betty's like, 
now I'm in this dream place. Los Angeles is the city of dreams. And then when they're going to going to go see Diane's apartment, they're like, it's just like in the movies, we'll pretend to be someone else. So there's a lot of duality in the meanings of a lot of these line readings, which I think is really interesting. And like how much of that is deliberate if David didn't know what he was doing for like the entirety of it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, even going off of that, having Laura and Naomi Watts say that same line twice. In the beginning of the movie, it's Laura in the limo and she says, we don't stop here. Yeah. And then it becomes a car crash. Whereas, and well, she was about to get shot and then it turned into a car crash. Whereas in the end of the film, it's Naomi Watts who says that line. And then Laura, you know, it's like, oh, take the shortcut up to the house, basically. Yeah. But it's the same line said in the same circumstances, but they're different. And in the the beginning, in the beginning, it's fate intervening on the hit that she put out on her. What I assume to be the hit. And then at the end, it's leading her to make the decision about the hit. So it's like an interesting cycle. Right. Oh, you're right. I didn't even notice that. I really like that. Like comes full circle and switches. But it's also like it's like its own like like world dimension where it's like it's in a loop. It's like a time loop. Right. Like a paradox story. Yeah. It's like the snake who eats its own tail. Mm hmm. Which, I don't know, now I, I'm just so hooked on the multiple dimension thing, because now I'm like, you know, how would we even know if there were multiple dimensions? And what if you do have this other version of your life somewhere out there and this other you that, you know, gets everything you want, and then you have a version that suffers, and then maybe you're right in the middle. And maybe if we got to see the rest of Betty's story, it would have just been a happy ending, and the other dimension is the tragedy. And maybe dreams are our portals into those other dimensions. Ooh. <laughs> yeah which it's all fascinating which is why I really really do like this movie because of all these things we're talking about like what other movies you can't talk about every movie in this way right no because I feel like even when I was trying to talk about some point I was trying to make I lost it like halfway through because I was like <laughs> I can only I can only make these small little pieces that fit together but as a whole, it still doesn't all fit together, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, can I, uh, I wrote down, Billy Ray Cyrus, cameo so <laughs> good. <laughs> I love yeah, the idea of it. Billy Ray Cyrus talking to David Lynch. I love that idea. <laughs> it was so, I didn't, I haven't, I don't have like a good idea of him young in my head. So I just heard his voice and I was like, wait a minute, this sounds exactly like Miley Cyrus. And I had to double check to make sure it was him. And I was like, they talk so uniquely. Another, I guess we can just talk about some of the casting now and the acting. The composer was a character in the movie. Angelo Badalamente is, I think I said that right. Yeah. I love that man. I love his music. Me too. Um, yeah, I, I just found that out too. He's the espresso guy. Yeah, he's the, which is like, honestly, that was fun acting. Because I was like, that is so repulsive. The way he spit that out is just so crazy and repulsive. It's very impactful. And that was a fun acting choice on his part. So speaking of multi-creative people, clearly, I think he did a good job in the role. I think he was a Castigliani brother. I don't know if that, I'm saying that last name right, but he was one of those guys, the espresso man. Another thing is 
I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but basically I think this film kind of discovered Laura Herring and this was her first major role. And then interestingly enough, Naomi Watts had really, it seems, and I think she's talked about this, was struggling for basically a decade, like throughout all her 20s, to really establish a career in Hollywood. She had gotten some roles and stuff, but just nothing had really, you know, clicked in the way she wanted it. She wasn't doing the roles she wanted artistically. It just wasn't working out. And after she finished this movie, she was actually going to kind of call it quits and move out of Hollywood and stop acting. She lost her health care and I guess was getting, was facing eviction where she lived <laughs> right after this film. I'm not sure how that's possible, but apparently Nicole Kidman convinced her to stay and give it another try. <laughs> really? That's fat. So like this was before she had received like critical acclaim for this movie then? Yeah, because she had already done the pilot, you know, and that didn't go yeah. so well. So she was kind of like, eh, I don't really know how the feature is going to go. And I don't know if I'm getting anywhere. So I think I might call it quits. And so she really does, I think, relate to this character super well because she kind of mirrors it herself. She has that. She's so scary good at the end, especially at that dinner scene, like the hunger of someone Ooh. in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, we all we. We see it as like twenty somethings in Hollywood. We we know that look and we know that like when you have to talk about yourself kind of thing. Um, oh, I don't like it. I so do not well. like that. I hate that feeling and that energy. It's just that desperation. I think is what mm-hmm. it is. And to me, it's just so incredibly off putting that type of energy. And it's not. I have empathy for it, and I'm sure I've experienced it myself. I have for <clears> sure, but. I just, I really try not to be around that or facilitate that in myself because I think it's an extremely unhealthy energy that, like you said, is around a lot. I was going to say, I have felt like her, like Diane in that dinner scene. And I'm sure you two can agree where Mm -hmm. you're made to feel like you're not good or you're less than, and it's not necessarily deliberate by the people in the dinner, but because there's so many questions of like, oh, what have you done? How did you meet this person? Who are you? Like, why do you deserve to be here? Is kind of like the overall tone of that conversation from my experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm always sitting there like, I just have not had my opportunity yet. Like, it has nothing yeah. to do with my talents, my abilities, my smarts. It has nothing to do with that. It's just my shot hasn't happened. Well, and you know, why or if even earn it to be there, why can't you just be a human who can deserve to be there anyway? <laughs> yeah, and I've noticed, like for me, I try to avoid those types of dinners, and it's funny because I do go to like holiday parties with a lot of, you know, big time people. Which I'm, I'm not. I mean, I want to <clears throat> keep people's privacy, so I'm not going to say like <laughs> names or anything, but like. You know, there's a lot of big timers at this holiday party, and those people are just so nice to me, and they just act like as if I'm at Alex's house or Claudia's house. It's kind of that same energy where because you're in somebody's private home. But then to see, like, from my own personal experience, that, and then the contrast of what you see in this movie, because both exist in this industry, mm-hmm. it's so funny to me that people, like, in the dinner party exist because it's like... I don't know. To me, like when I have those experiences with people like that, I'm just like, you're very shallow and you don't see people for more than a ticket for the next job or the next gig or whatever. You don't humanize the people that you're working with. You just look at it as a 
networking opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very and I just want to mini rant. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what I think this this film does well is show that kind of ugly underbelly of Hollywood that and like Lynch loves to show that for like anything. It's kind of like his like ugly underbelly Americana thing of like blue mm-hmm. velvet. And mm-hmm. um I think he does that really well. And I think his like fuck yous are very like capital F fuck you to like the Hollywood system. Um, mm-hmm. I also respect that. <laughs> Which he does not exactly follow like all the norms of the Hollywood um, community or whatever you would call it because the way he even casted this film, he didn't audition either of the main actresses. He cast them essentially off a photo and mm. then brought them in for 30 minute interviews, not auditions where he just wanted to talk to them and ask them questions about themselves and just get a feel of who they were were as a person, which I read something about Naomi Watts saying that this was such a defining moment for her was just having that meeting with David Lynch because she was so burnt out from the normal Hollywood auditions and cattiness and all of that that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. So to go into this big, you know, filmmaker and just have him just be chill and normal was like, Oh my gosh, like, I feel so comfortable. And she said she was almost in tears leaving the interview. And then she got mm-hmm. the role two weeks later. And on that note, David Lynch said that he casted her because he just saw such a possibility in the different roles she could play, which was obviously key for this character to be able to have that duality of both sides. Yeah, he seems to be very intuition based with the stuff that he does, which I think is cool and admirable and something that mm-hmm. is good to like seek out for your own work is just listen to your intuition and like ideas flow well and he was so right because I actually think Naomi Watts is just one of the best actresses out there I think she's really really good for what I mentioned yes she can play lots of different roles but also she just has this quality in her that under the surface Mm -hmm. that is always kind of boiling there and a little bit like you know I don't even have words for it but it's kinetic under the surface and she seems like this like perfect little blonde girl but she you know that's not the case I guess she's very (laughs) dynamic and I actually have like the biggest crush on her I'm not gonna lie I love her King Kong I love that movie oh yeah King Kong is so good you should see it Claudia no I fell in love with her in Gypsy which I know uh bad name for the show but it was a very good show and she played this therapist who um like entered her patient's personal life and was just very good <laughs> oh and I, her honestly that, her fake name in gypsy is diane which was interesting oh that's fun mm-hmm. i hearing you describe that audition process that david lynch did with naomi watts i'm like i want to steal that because that is so genius mm-hmm. that is so brilliant because how better is actor that you want in your movie than to just have a conversation about you know, the role acting or whatever it is that they talked about versus like, you know, where you see like, we've seen it in La La Land where it's like the same looking people auditioning mm-hmm. for your role. Like, how do you choose? Well, we even instances? saw it in this movie with the audition and how weird and uncomfortable it is. And yes, you can succeed at that, but that's also its own separate skill besides just being a good actress is knowing how to be a good actress when you're in such like a weird environment that's extremely uncomfortable and sleazy. And I think you can also still be a good actress not knowing how to do that. They're not mutually exclusive. 
Um, but these yeah. days it's usually required that you have to be able to like go through that really crazy process and be in a little tiny room and all Advocate that. Advocate for yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and an interview is acting in itself too. I mean, if you want to get like pull back the lens, it's like we are always yeah. all acting and putting on different versions of ourselves and I think oh, that's definitely. an interesting way to see a version of a person that you would like want to work with which I do format. also have to mention she came into the audition I guess straight from the airport she had flown in from somewhere and went straight from the airport to the interview with David Lynch and was wearing like jeans and super casual like I just flew on a plane and he was like you know what come back as a more glam version of yourself tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really interesting and another weird kind of test to be like, oh, I see you as this rundown version, but like tomorrow, can you pull off the Betty? You know yeah. what I mean? Which is kind of fun. But at the same time, it's like he's doing these things, I think, to gauge. It doesn't seem like he made her feel bad in the process. It wasn't like, you look like a pile of trash. Come right. back tomorrow. It was like, oh, you just got off of a plane. Let's see. Like, let's just do this tomorrow. You know what I mean? That's the sense I get versus like, I'm that's, bullying you. That's yeah. funny because like, I can look really disgusting. And then, oh, let me pull it together. Oh, wow, you're, like, super gorgeous. Like, I really, there is no middle ground for me. <laughs> like, so I'm like, oh, I totally get why David Lynch would say something like that. My version of it, that is super sweaty or super nice looking. <laughs> like, it's work out too much that you will get 50% of me is just like, hey, I'm dripping in sweat. What's up? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Now I'm like, I have my hair pulled. I got my glasses on, these like comically large headphones. I'm in this giant hoodie. Like, I do not care right now. I just watched the movie. <laughs> this is not even like a video podcast. That's been most so of quarantine right. for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did want to ask you guys now that we're still kind of talking about the acting aspect. Did you have any note in your head about the women's age in the movie? Like, when no. you were watching it, you didn't think about their age, really. Well, I was like, they're obviously maybe 20s. Because that's, like, the age of being a struggling artist in Hollywood. That's, like, the, the, the median age, you know, is mid to late 20s. That was my only thought. Yeah, I had a similar thought. I thought that, like, they were maybe, like, late 20s, maybe early 30s. Like, maybe. Like, a big maybe for, like, early 30s. But I figured they were, like, in their late 20s as well. Okay, I just had a big thought when I was watching it. I don't know if this is more poignant for me because I do go out on auditions and even being a dancer, there's a lot of pressure like to be young as a dancer, a ballet dancer specifically. But I totally thought, I was like, oh, it's interesting. They look like they're like 30 in this. Like, is this even believable that like a 30-year-old mm. person would be coming to Hollywood to just start out and, you know, try mm. it? And I think that's just because I know how the industry is. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, it's going to eat you up if you're older, you know? Laura yeah. has a very mature face. Like, and I don't know if that is a bad thing to say. It shouldn't be a bad thing to say. She no. just has, like, this very mature beauty about her. Yeah. Which is, like, almost intimidating. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, she she definitely looks like she's she a has woman. been established. <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a capital W woman. Well, and I I mean I even think that you know Betty Diane looks like a woman in a different way, but you can tell she's not twenty. Like you know yeah. that. I know you guys suspended your disbelief a little bit, but I couldn't because I was like, this is so different. Which I liked this about the film that it's not some like eighteen year old looking 
person doing the Hollywood thing. Cause that's always how it is. Like even think of something like neon demon. She's like a teenager who's 16 and came to Hollywood and that's when it eats you up. But it's like, no, the bad environment could actually eat you up at any age. If you let it, if you're desperate cool. enough. Yeah. I, I have an interesting perspective on actors because I do agree. And I see what you're saying. Cause like society is obsessed with youth and like, you have to be big when you're young. Yeah. But I always think about acting like, what, there's no older people in a movie? It's not a bunch of teenagers. You have people with a wide the range key, in the films. The key is, do you want to be a leading lady? Which that's most people's goals. Which this is changing nowadays, and I'm so happy about that. But I think even more so, which obviously the studio execs were like, or the TV execs were like, oh, they're too old to be the stars of this TV right. show. Right. <clears throat> yeah, you know? that's telling. But it's yeah. like, of course you can act at any age, but it's like, if you want to be a movie star who's the right. lead man or woman yeah you better be 18 and fresh and it's like that's Mm -hmm. not who like yes there are good stories about people who are 18 to 20 but there are also great stories about any age and you should be able to be a leading man or woman at any age and I think that's slowly changing which is great I think that also comes from like evolving your craft like you you look at like Leo and Kate Winslet and like like Kate Blanchett and anyone who was like lead material and they've all been like They've put in their years, and I think that that narrative is one, like, bogus, but to, like, the one that's become the main narrative for, like, leading people. Yeah, and maybe because I'm older, like, I'm in my later 20s, I'm like, it's kind of silly and unbelievable that it would be, like, a 20-year-old that's, like, Mm -hmm. you know, leading a whatever, revolution or whatever it is, like, in the story. I'm like, it makes more sense if the lady is, like, in her 30s. (laughs) Or, like, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Like, I just, I feel like the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, wait, this kind of seems so silly that we think it's only, like, early 20-year-olds that would be doing something like this. Like, oh, to diverge, like, deeply. Like, that's how I feel about the hero's journey. It's always, like, a 16-year-old boy. Oh, definitely. You're like, wouldn't it be, like, a 40-year-old man? But then you look at it, it's like, oh, but all the adults had to die. And actually, it was a lot of the adults that had to put in the Good work. Point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, they actually made the sacrifices. Which, it's it's so great that we can laugh about it now, like the ageism that was very prevalent um, 20 years ago. But it means, it just shows how silly it was. And I'm glad that we've progressed as a society. And, and I know the industry is still progressing. Like, there's still so much work we have to do to make it even more acceptable. And I think, honestly, like, Grace and Frankie was a groundbreaking show, and I do think that people are going to talk about it a lot more in decades to come, how groundbreaking I that was. love that show. I love that show. Jane yeah. Fonda and Lily Tomlin. I love that. So good. Yeah, we're making changes, but we still have some of that old mindset. You know, you can never just full-on get rid of an old mindset. You have to slowly integrate until it's gone, which is hopefully what's happening in the political climate, but, you know, not going to go there today. <laughs> Well, because even, like, think about, like, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson is an incredible actress. Imagine, like, telling her, no, you can't be the lead of a TV show because you're too old. Which she got to break out in, like, I think her 30s as well. Like, that's when she started really doing big movies. And now I think she's a movie star now for sure. And everybody loves her and she's killing it. So clearly there's no reason not to let someone in their 40s be a movie star. No reason. Mm -hmm. It's great. It works. Another crush of mine. (laughs) (laughs) you're just bringing my favorite people up today (laughs) I love them they're some of my favorite actresses both of them Naomi and Sarah 
you know how we did the Wes Andersonisms? I feel like there are definitely yeah. Lynchisms. If there that's are. The and I wrote some of them down. And I'm sure Alex knows probably all of them. <laughs> yeah. Please share. So I had noticed just a couple. The mysterious sort of empty curtained walled rooms that you have no idea where they are or who the person mm -hmm. is in them who's kind of in charge but it gives you this idea that there's some puppet master behind it all whether mm -hmm. that's a person or an entity and somehow it's always represented by those curtained rooms that are like nowhere in particular mm -hmm. can oh, i just say about the curtains because i wrote down about the curtains too like that is very david lynch thing and when you think about it from a filmmaking production perspective so putting, easy putting gorgeous uh, curtains on the walls there you go your shot looks amazing so very easy, very cheap you know thing to do so it's yeah, a very that's... smart production mm -hmm. move to I make as I well i want to do it in my house actually well we did it in enfilarage we had curtains <laughs> that was mm -hmm. kind of the shoddy version but yeah i'll give it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know <laughs> No, I'm talking uh, about like the the moment where you oh, come out from the curtains. No, that, Those that curtains. Good. That was yeah. not, that was good. Never mind. I'm not yeah. talking shit about my own thing anymore. <laughs> that was actually okay, it's a learning experience. We get better over time. <laughs> yeah, but that that did bring up the production value a bit. So you're right, and that was easy. I stole my boyfriend lover partner's curtains and uh, took them over to Lena's house, and we hung those babies up and. That's what you see in the film that we did on collage. Filmed at, I think, 3 a.m. ish. Right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, and okay. I think the current fell a couple of times, so there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, go ahead, continue with your lynchisms. Oh, I guess I kind of combined them into two because my two were the curtains and then the kind of puppet master entity controlling everything that happens sort of feeling. So I wrote down like the cowboy character because the cowboy character. I feel like we always have a character like that where you're like, is this like God? Is this the magic right. person? Like yeah. who is this character supposed to like represent? Kind of like we a moral compass in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who just like comes in and out. And I noticed that he like quickly in the dinner scene just like walks past mm -hmm. uh, when she's looking out. Yeah, so like, who is like, that? kind of like around, and but you're like you don't really know who this is. For me, I see them as like the keeper of the dimensions of all the dimensions. Mm. They're like the gatekeeper. Well, because he says to Adam, "If you see me twice, you're in trouble," or whatever. And then we see him. Adam technically, I feel, sees him once at the dinner party because he said, "Like this is the girl in the other reality," but then. We see him twice where he says, like, wake up, pretty girl, to Diane. Right. I don't know. I felt like he's kind of maybe like a moral compass or a conscience or a guide for the film. Because he talks about man's choice, essentially. Yeah. Whereas the film also delves into, like, this is all speculation. So film yeah. delves into, like, destiny and fate and, like, choice. And I think that if we're getting film nerdy thinking about what like the cowboy once represented in old Hollywood, which is also a big looming presence in this film too, is the cowboy represented, you know, justice and riding the path between the law mm. and citizenship and like things like that. So I think that's interesting. Very good point. I like that. It was really cool to see LA like this in this movie. Yeah. Cause I've never seen LA like this. 
even just mm-hmm. like how specific the streets are. I'm like, oh yeah, I know exactly where that neighborhood is. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in that neighborhood a bunch of times. I know totally. Sierra Bonita. I've seen those, yeah. that apartment building. I've been on the Holland like a billion times. It's really cool to see that time capsule of early 2000s LA. Being very immersed six years into my LA life, it's cool to be able to pinpoint corners. You're like, oh my God, I know where that is. I don't yeah. know. I never, I was never able to do that growing up because I lived in the suburbs of Chicago. It's cool. It's very grounding. Wait, how come you can't yeah. do that? Just because there aren't as many landmarks or how does that work well, out? New York and LA are the movies. The mm, movie. Got it. I, I didn't know what, watching The Proud Family, I didn't get the joke of the girl's name being La Cienega, like growing oh, up. Oh my God. Yeah, you know, same. Like, things I like that. right now. <laughs> No, like, I totally agree with you, Alex, because I don't know what the hell Mulholland is. Okay, I the first time I went on Mulholland, I went with my my partner, right? He took me there, and it was, I was visiting L.A. I hadn't even moved here yet. Mm. And he was like, oh, I want to take you to Mulholland. I was like, what the hell is Mulholland? Like, even the name, like, Mulholland, <laughs> yeah. like, it just so it was so foreign to me. I was like, what is the street? And so he drove me at night, and it was, I mean, it's beautiful. Like, if you ever have an opportunity to drive up Mulholland Drive in L.A. It is scary because it's so windy, Yeah, but it's so gorgeous. It's, like, one of the best views of the city. And isn't that, like, a commentary? Scary, windy, gorgeous, you know? Yeah, all of those things. But and it's in the Hollywood Hills. You know? And then she goes to Franklin and Sunset, and I'm like, I know those, I know those roads. Yep. Like yes. I, I can see the map in my head. Me too. And it was, it's so fun. I think when you go move to a new city and you just finally get to be like, oh, I understand how this map works, and yeah, you get context. And well, I think even that like neighborhood is, it's in Hollywood, and it's. It's honestly my favorite neighborhood in LA and I just like dream of living in that area for temporarily like in an apartment maybe at some point cuz I don't one? really want to live in a house there. Like in where Mulholland? Sierra Bonita. Oh, where Sierra okay. Oh, where Sierra Bonita is like that gotcha. area of Hollywood. Like I am obsessed with that neighborhood. <laughs> gotcha. What's interesting too is for more context, the cowboy tells Adam to go to the corral on Beachwood Canyon. And Beachwood Canyon is all of these homes that were built for Hollywood land, like 1920s golden age of cinema. He was basically like enter this this kind of like this portal into this golden age place. Mm-hmm. And that's like yeah. kind of close by where Mulholland Drive is, it is too. It is close, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. a little over. Sorry to that. all you non-Angelinos listening to this. I know. But you should come <laughs> visit and do a tour based on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to say, it's very interesting that he sets it in this part of Hollywood, mm-hmm. L.A., and it's literal Hollywood, because there's yeah. the Hollywood we talk about in the abstract, but then there's the actual city limits of the city right. of Hollywood. Which we and see a movies, lot of downtown, too. Which you can tell downtown from those parking signs. They all look like yeah. that <laughs> And I was going to say, it's really interesting that the movie's called Mulholland Drive. It's not called Hollywood or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. called Mulholland Drive. And you were pointing at that, Alex, by talking about it's like the windy road and all that. Details. And yeah. I think that now, you know, Mulholland Drive, that has come to represent Hollywood in a different, more intimate way than just saying, Hollywood, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Mulholland Drive. Now that we have this movie, it's taken on a whole new meaning. It's like zooming in to, from just yeah. 
sign to like the nitty gritty. Exactly. And we never see the Hollywood sign or anything in this movie because we're not that on the surface about it. And um, even like I was I just realized because I was saying I want to live in the Sierra Bonita like area for an apartment. But then I always dreamt of living in a house off of Mulholland Drive. So it is very quintessential. You move to L.A. and this is where you want to live and this is where you want to be. Wow, I am a stereotype. <laughs> I know. I want to live in the Los Hills. <laughs> a little over. It just seems more chill than the windy, mm. crazy death-likeness of Mulholland. I get scared driving there. I used to have to drive there for, like, a fitness class I did through it. I don't know. I lose service on my phone. Yeah, it's it's a stressful experience. I don't think I could live there just for that reason, too stressful driving-wise. See, for me, it's thrilling. Like, that's so exciting. Like, I don't know. There's something about it that just... Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved the mountains. I think that there's something very beautiful about the mountains, and I think that they're very spiritual. I don't really know how to describe it any deeper than that, but there's... I feel like the mountains are alive. I know I sound a little crazy when I say that, but I think that the mountain is alive. And I think that... They catch on fire for a reason. And I don't think anybody should ever live there as I contradict myself by saying that <laughs> I want to live there. But I don't think people should be living up there. So I think that there's something exciting about having a house in that environment. Okay, danger hey, over here. We're all on <laughs> yeah. here. Shout out to the Tongva people of LA. You know, the, yeah, the mountains do fight back for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like this is just my my... I've been at home for months, and I'm going a little nuts coming out, too. <laughs> like, let's live in that dangerous road with the fire mountains. Hey. Let's do it. <laughs> I just, yeah, I remember when I first came out here, I'm coming from Illinois, which is all fucking flatland and corn, and I see that horizon with that are speckled with mountains and shapes and the beautiful sunsets and the Hollywood sign. It's... It's like intoxicating. I still am in awe of it. I can't help but love it, you know? Did we talk about the plot? Uh, I feel like I want to bring up the Club Silencio scene. And I want to... I love that scene. It's just so quintessential David Lynch and it's haunting and it's so meta in the oh. way where they're like, no, no, I bonda. Like there's no band. Mm-hmm. This is all an illusion. It is. It's so well done. And I don't know. I feel that is like a very aspirational scene for me that I've drawn a lot of inspiration from just to be able to make something like that where you could look at that scene from so many points of view and so many references. And it really is like the crux, like the pivot point, I think, for the whole movie. And I really love it. And I want to hear your thoughts on it. Well, one, I forgot. I did write that down. That's a lynchism, if that's what we're going to go with calling that. Because he loves to put a musical performance 
in his work, but it's like always a specific type. It's not just like, oh, let's put any singer in here. I read that this recording happened because the singer was taken to a recording studio by her manager and Lynch just happened to be there and her manager was like, oh, sing a song for him. And then a couple years later, they pretty much used that exact recording for this scene. So beautiful. Uh, The song, the way she sings it is just gorgeous and I love it. Songs in Spanish and specifically some Mexican music, it elicits such a specific feeling of sadness that I really feel like is their own genre of song when it's in Spanish. And I come from a place with a lot of you know, Latinx people. It's it's a comforting sound to me, even though it's so sad. It's like a yearning. And that song yeah. is about, like, unrequited love, which is, like, also, like, mm-hmm. about the movie. It's, it's a Roy Orbison song who also did Dreams, the musical number from Blue Velvet. So, right. like, I thought that was an interesting connection, even though it was on accident, I guess, that he got that recording. Mm, right. Interesting. It was a, it was synchronicity more than an accident. Yeah. Happy accidents. I um I also felt the scene was very powerful, but I, there's always a but with me. I don't know why. And this is just from my own background experience. We have this singer in the Arab world named Imka Thum, and her voice is poetry, and she sings about sadness in a level that I haven't heard anybody ever sing that way before. And even when you guys were talking about like how the song, you felt all that sadness... For me, when I was watching it, I was like, I wish this was one of her songs instead. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like her music is just a whole nother level of sadness that I feel. And that could just be from my own, you know, background and experience and memories I have associated to that song. So I kind of watched that scene kind of wishing it was a different song. But the different song captures the same feeling that the song used did but I didn't feel that with the song used because of my own experiences yeah I guess I get that and I just I think there are a lot of like really profound examples of just deeply sad and touching songs at the same time you know so it'd be hard to choose but that's what he ended up choosing yeah it works right I thought the lady with the blue hair was very fascinating Mm -hmm. because we end the movie with her and I'm like, uh, yeah, who is she? That confused me, which apparently I read she was positioned like Abraham Lincoln, and I just didn't really understand that. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of confused. Piggyback on that, I kind of jumped into reading about like the color symbolism in the film. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, sometimes Ooh. I have to go to other sources to help me gather thoughts about a movie because that's all critique is is just kind of like bouncing off of each other's thoughts and interpretations but I really like this one that was talking about how blue kind of represents the like blanket of death and breaking from reality and so like the box is blue the key is blue the the box is kind of where we enter and exit the like quote-unquote reality and dream sequence she ends the movie where 
basically both Camilla and Diane are dead, if you go with that. And when they're in Club Silencio, there is like this whole blue light that washes over Mm -hmm. all of them. And he uses blue very deliberately in the film. He also uses red and pink very deliberately in the film. I was just going to talk about that with assigning the characters, like who they are based on their look Mm -hmm. the whole time. Camilla slash Rita has the red lipstick and she is dressed like a femme fatale, but she seems really nice. So it kind of gives us a hint to that switch like, oh, we might get another version of her. And then with the Naomi Watts character, she's like, oh, I'm pink nails and pink lips. And then in her other reality, she has the red more like Camilla. So, yeah, I definitely love the usage of pink and red for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pink feels like innocent. Yeah. And then at the end, she's in this dirty white robe where she could be like in a pure white, but she's it's like an unpure kind of white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I felt the noir, like you can feel it. Like it reminded me a lot of um, Hitchcock's movies Mm -hmm. in terms of like having the blonde. Yes. You know, which um, Naomi Watts said she based her performance on. Tippi Hedren and Doris Day. So that's one of them is the mm. Hitchcock actress. So it's interesting that we get that Hitchcock blonde that we discuss in another episode. <laughs> but I wrote that, but I also wrote there are elements of a gangster movie. It's there, very genre blendy. It yeah. really, really is soap opera, gangster movie, thriller, um, noir, surrealism, yeah. noir. It's everything. It's everything, yeah. which I love genre bending things. Yeah, I do too. too. I, it's so much fun. I feel like I'm so silly when I do podcasts. I, I can hear it in myself now how much of a walking contradiction I am. Because I'm like, this movie was okay. And now I'm like, this movie's brilliant. Like, you can within also an hour. loving a movie. You can really yeah. be talked it, I think. You if you yeah. are surrounded by passionate people. And also, whenever... Whenever I walk in a, out of a movie and someone's like, oh, what did you think? I'm like, I can't. Like, I need time. And, like, you had just come off watching it. Yeah. So. I, <laughs> I definitely do because, yeah, Lena, you were literally, like, turned it off and came on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even have time to process. A lot I of know. these I think I don't like. And then days later, I'm still thinking about it. And then I'm like, you know what? Never mind. I do like it. <laughs> if a movie haunts me, I'll probably yeah. end up liking it. And even I think if it didn't give me haunting. a good feeling. Or even if I can't stop thinking about aspects of it, like the movie Climax, it really disturbs me. And overall, I'm like, I don't like it. But I think about so many parts of it all the time. So I'm I like, I guess you do. Up. You I know you do bring it up a lot. <laughs> Brought up on your first podcast. <laughs> See, clearly it's there, and I'm like, go away, and it doesn't yeah, work. You obviously need to like work it out and do a podcast about it. These are the movies. Yeah, podcast. I will. About. I will do it though, Alex. I can't do like overtly violent, like grotesque violent. I can't do it. I can't stomach I, it. I would never recommend this for Lena ever. As a pacifist, I really love, I mean, my, some of my favorite movies happen to have a lot of violence. Yeah, because you like Scorsese. Yeah, I really like Scorsese. I love A Clockwork Orange. I mean, like, I love A Clockwork Orange. This is why I'm like, I'm a walking contradiction. Like, what is wrong with me? I know <laughs> the violence Lena doesn't like, though. And I know she yeah. would not like the violence in Climax. Like, I kind of, I have, like, a little bit of a sense of, like, what crosses the line for you, I think. But, yeah, I, I get that. I'll, don't watch Game of Thrones. Um. <laughs> See, but I feel like I could watch Game it's of Thrones. Fake enough. This is why it, I don't, it doesn't make sense. 
But I'm telling you, climax <laughs> and that's not do. Okay, so like, like art Too house realistic. violence. Yeah, yeah. Not even art house, just like. Because I can handle like overly gore that's comedic a little bit. Like I watched all of Lovecraft Country and I loved it. And that show is violent, but it's like is real. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like I can stomach that because it looks fantasy. Yes. It has to have like fantasy. I think it has to also with like a clockwork orange, you have that music, which Kubrick does deliberately. So you can like stomach it. And like cartoon violence, I can stomach. And there's certain things I can stomach, but then yeah. Like I will not be watching Try and find out. <laughs> Try I and know. <laughs> I know. Can I stomach climax or not? That's gonna be a whole episode. <laughs> Claudia saying no. <laughs> we'll have to bring on a guest because you'll probably be like, I watched uh the first whatever until it goes into the violent part. Because it's not violent at all for the first like, I don't know, thirty minutes, forty. And then I'll be like, I read the synopsis, so I can talk about that. <laughs> Who did climax? Who just par Noé. Oh, what's that one movie he did about the drug? It's trip? also fucking so disturbing, and I that movie fucks me up. But I what movie remember. is that? I don't know, but I know what you're talking. About. <laughs> I have like um, it's like he did love, which I haven't seen, but I can't remember the one I have seen that really yeah, freaking starts with a V, right? I don't know. Yeah, I'm over here like give me Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I just did. A- oh, Enter the Void. Yeah, that, that one. one. Ugh. That movie I think is worse than Climax and how it disturbs me. Really? Well, I don't know. I was a little. I'll bit... have to watch Climax. You haven't seen it? Mm-mm. The dance sequence is so good. I'm sure it is. I've seen. I saw the the trailer, and I remember when you watched it first, and you were posting about it. Yeah, I mean, my obsession over here that I don't even want to admit to myself. Mm. (laughs) Thanks for bearing with us on part one of our Mulholland Drive episode. I know we went on a lot of tangents and we all spoke a lot of love letters to L.A., but next week we will be diving straight into all of the actual good movie stuff that you guys love. We will end with our fun facts, our Mary Screw Kill, all the regular segments, and we start off diving straight into the wonderful music of the film. So stay tuned. We will be releasing part two soon, and we will see you all then.